Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. Hello, New City. Happy Mother's Day. I'm so happy to be here with y'all today. And by here, I mean my bedroom, but hanging out with y'all virtually. Uh, yeah, happy Mother's Day. I'm honored to be preaching this morning and just wanted to give y'all a heads up before we launch into this sermon uh, about some of the content um, that there are um, some references to racial violence, um, including lynching and slavery. Um, so please uh, take care of yourselves in the ways that you need to. So in my last sermon, I uh, preached for the Revelation Reclaimed Sermon series about this idea of the monstrous, those who are feared and excluded from society based on their otherness. And today I'd like to follow that imagery a little bit further by introducing you to another monstrous creature. Way, way down deep at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean lives a creature known as the deep sea dragonfish. I'm gonna show you an image of one. There it is, the dragonfish. They can look a little scary and one could probably say monstrous, right? But let me tell you a little bit about the dragonfish. They're actually pretty amazing creatures. The deep sea dragonfish, as the name would suggest, they live in the deep sea, far, 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 far underwater. They're primarily found in the Atlantic Ocean and the parts of the ocean that they inhabit are as far deep as three miles below the surface of the water. As you can probably imagine, the conditions at that depth of the ocean are pretty extreme. For example, let's talk about atmospheric pressure. You, may, you might remember learning in science class that air, believe it or not, has weight. Thanks to gravity, the air and the atmosphere above us is actually constantly exerting pressure on us and literally weighing us down. You don't feel it because uh, the cells in your body are actually pressing outward with the same amount of force. So that's why atmospheric pressure is not something you notice. But this kind of validates maybe how much energy it seems to take just to exist in this atmosphere. Constant pressure. Now scientists sometimes use atmospheres as a unit of measurement for pressure. So one atmosphere equals the amount of air pressure at sea level. It's a base unit of measurement. So if you're at sea level, the air that surrounds you is pressing down on your body at 4.7 pounds per inch. 4.7 pounds per inch. Now, that might not seem like a lot, but if you calculate the inches across your entire body, that comes out to almost 50,000 pounds and that's the weight of about two school buses. So that's a lot of pressure. That's at sea level. Uh, that's 
one atmosphere, the amount of pressure that we are experiencing if we live at sea level, um, which here in Durham, we live pretty close to sea level. It's like 400 feet above sea level, I think. Uh, Minneapolis, I think y'all are maybe double that, but still relatively close to sea level. So we're experiencing right now, if you live anywhere near sea level, you're experiencing something like two school buses worth of pressure being exerted on your body. And once you start measuring pressure underwater, things get even more intense because water, as you probably know, weighs a great deal more than air. So the deeper you go underwater, the more pressure you experience. In the diving world, diving just 60 to 100 feet underwater is already considered a deep dive. The record depth for scuba diving is right around 980 feet. That's quite a lot. That's like the height of a 70-story building. But even that is still less than a fifth of a mile underwater. Now at this point, 980 feet below the surface of the water, we're looking at about 30 atmospheres of pressure, 30 times what we experience at sea level. That's a lot of pressure. And that's about the limit of what the human body can organically survive. That's why diving can be really dangerous. And that's why there are limits and there are um, uh, procedures in place to follow to make sure that um, our pressure is being regulated um, during a dive. So as you can imagine, if that's less than a fifth of a mile below the surface of the water, that's how much the human body can handle. Dragonfish are living three miles below the surface of the water. That's where dragonfish live. So the pressure down there is enormous. It can range from 200 to 600 atmospheres. 200 to 600 atmospheres, 200 to 600 times the amount of pressure that we are experiencing right now. That is a lot of school buses worth of pressure. And even for getting pressure, not talking about pressure, there are other conditions down there three miles below the surface of the, the ocean that make it extremely difficult to survive. The temperatures down there are pretty close to freezing and plant life is non-existent. As you can imagine, it's really hard to survive down there, so you're not gonna see plant life. And even light does not reach down to those depths. It, it doesn't reach anywhere near those depths, really. So it's completely dark. But somehow the dragonfish has found a way to figure out how to survive in these places where most other organisms really cannot. They've learned to make a home, to make a life while, un while facing unimaginable pressure without resources in the midst of utter darkness. It's no wonder that Audre Lorde compares her existence as a queer black woman to that of the dragonfish. In her poem, After Images, she writes, becoming dragonfish to survive the horrors we are living with tortured lungs adapting to breathe blood. Lord wrote this poem 24 years after the lynching of Emmett Till, the 14-year-old black child who was brutally beaten and murdered for allegedly flirting with a white woman. 
In this poem, she describes how she became a kind of mother in the wake of Till's tragic murder. You see, Lord turned 21 in the summer of his death, and the horror of this event never left her. She's writing about it 24 years later, decades later. And like Till was drowned in a river, Lord found herself flooded with a bloody current of after images of his death that were still, she says, etched into my visions decades later. After Till's death at the time, his mother bravely chose to expose the horrors of her son's mutilated remains in an open casket funeral as a witness to the violence of white supremacy. Of course, the press capitalized on her loss and plastered every street corner with images of her son's body. What Lord describes as a secret relish, fetishized and fingered by street corner eyes, inflicted overwhelming personal pain and initiated her into a kind of motherhood. She says, he was baptized my son forever in the midnight waters of the pearl. The flood of gratuitous violence on black bodies is a suffocating current of blood amidst which black women become mothers to those who are its victims. Lord's poem powerfully depicts the singularity of black mothering, which gathers in a kind of togetherness, not bound by biological ties, physical place, or socially constructed time. Rather, it unites black women together because of their common experience as dragonfish who learn to survive the horrors we are living with tortured lungs adapting to breathe blood. I think Hagar knew something about survival as a dragonfish. In the foundational womanist text, Sisters in the Wilderness, Biblical scholar Dolores Williams reads Hagar as a prototype for the historic struggle of Black women that continues into the present. And it makes a lot of sense. Hagar was an enslaved African woman, a homeless exile, a social outcast, and a surrogate mother. Williams describes both Hagar's struggle and that of a contemporary Black woman as making a way out of no way. Hagar's story provides a picture of survival and defiance resonant with Black women's experience today. Now, when Hagar became pregnant with Abraham's child, the text tells us that she looked with contempt on her mistress, Sarah, is how it's worded in some translations. But a better translation actually is something like Sarah was lowered in her eyes. And this tells us that Hagar's inner response is challenging the established hierarchy of mistress and slave girl. Instead, she's recognizing them as equals. But of course, she was punished for this belief. And we're told by the text that Sarah treated her very badly after this. So Hagar becomes a runaway slave, fleeing to the wilderness for safety. It really says a lot about her treatment as Sarah's slave, that she would rather take her chances alone and unsupported as a newly pregnant young woman in the desert than remaining in Sarah's home. Yet in the desert, she is met by God, 
who offers her a blessing and a promise of protection for her and her offspring. In response, Hagar becomes the first and only person in the entire Bible to give God a name. She cries out to God, you are El Roy, which means God who sees. God who sees. God who sees the enslaved, the outcast, the abandoned, the hopeless, the weary. The one time Hagar is given a voice in this text, she makes a theologically profound statement. This God is her God, God of the oppressed. So when God directs her to return to Sarah, she takes a massive step of faith and she does just that. She trusts that she can breathe underwater. And the next time we hear of Hagar in scripture, the child that was in her belly has now become a teenage boy, Ishmael. We're not told in any of those intervening chapters how she did it, but somehow she did. She made a way out of no way. Living under intense pressure in an environment that challenged her survival day in and day out, she not only survived, but gave birth to new life and cultivated new life. She's a dragonfish. And she's an exemplar of black mothering, as we see in her story, creating a generous space for life in the face of life-threatening limits, activating a powerful vision of the future while navigating the present and holding fast all the while to the belief that another world is possible. Many of us gathered here today have gone through some extensive deconstruction of our faith. We've suffered far too long under oppressive theologies that do not serve us. Maybe we've been deeply harmed and mistreated by the institutional church. Or we've come to recognize the ways religion is wielded as a weapon of judgment and oppression on those around us. And we've decided we'd be better off in the desert than staying under that roof. But for some reason, those of us here have returned in one way or another. I mean, this is a church service after all, and we're here. Maybe it's just the smallest spark of curiosity that has us showing up on a Sunday morning, the hope of something different. But we're here. You're here. And I think a lot of us are here because, like Hagar, we've chosen in the desert to name God as our own. We've chosen to believe that God sees us, sees our struggle, sees our pain, even if the church does not. And maybe, just maybe, we believe another world is possible. Hagar and other black mothers like her have modeled for us a revolutionary hope, this persistence in the face of impossibility. And I can't help think of, I can't help but think of the mothers of the movement, the sister, effort of Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, which is made up of mothers of children who have been murdered by state and police violence. 
They too are dragonfish who persist in making a way out of no way. At the 2016 Democratic National Convention, these mothers gathered on stage to share their witness. One of them was Lucy Macbeth, the mother of Jordan Davis. Listen to her words. You don't stop being a mom when your child dies. I am still Jordan Davis's mother. His life ended the day he was shot and killed for playing loud music, but my job as his mother didn't. I still wake up every day wondering how to parent him, how to protect him and his legacy. We're going to keep telling our children's stories and urging you to say their names. We're going to keep building a future. In 2018, Lucy McBath ran for the House of Representatives and defeated the Republican incumbent in what has been called the biggest Georgia Democratic upset of the 2018 midterms. Today, she remains the representative from Georgia's sixth district for the US House of Representatives. She's breathing underwater. It truly is black mothers like Hagar, like Lucy McBath, who point us forward, testifying that there's hope to be found amidst despair. We can rebuild something beautiful from the rubble of our deconstruction. Like Audre Lorde though, one doesn't necessarily have to have biological children to embody black mothering. In the pilot episode of the TV show Pose, which explores New York's underground queer ball culture. We meet Blanca, a black trans woman who determines to start her own house. Now in ballroom culture, houses serve as alternative families, primarily consisting of black and POC queer folks. Houses are led by mothers and fathers who are usually older members of the ballroom scene typically drag queens, gay men, or trans women, and they provide guidance and support for their house children. So Blanca decides to start her own house after she discovers that she tested positive for HIV, which at the time was essentially a swift death sentence. Now Damon is a young black man who has just been kicked out of his home, his biological family home, after coming out as gay to his parents. When Blanca meets Damon, he is living on the streets and busking in Washington Square Park to survive. She invites him to join her house and he becomes the first member of the House of Evangelista. Now Damon wants to become a professional dancer, but he missed the application deadline for the prestigious dance school that he dreams of attending. Unfazed, Blanca marches him to the school and pleads with the head teacher to give him an audition. I want us to watch just a short clip from this scene. This young boy has been discarded and he is so young. He believes that it has something to do with who he is. It's like cancer. It is going to eat at him from the inside until he starts to resent even the best parts of himself. Have a seat. I don't understand. 
understand what you want me to do. We've accepted our fall class. We are full. No, but he is special. He's got all the talent and all the hurt. You need to be a true artist. Let him dance for you. Give him a chance. Give him three minutes of your time. When was the last time you were truly surprised by something in your life? Who are you again? I'm his mother. I'm his mother. With these words, Blanca embodies the essence of Black queer mothering that transforms what family means. To reimagine kinship and to create new forms of belonging, even in the face of oppression, violence, and suffering. For we belong to one another, especially those of us who are outcasts, others, monsters. And together, we will learn from the dragonfish how to breathe underwater. Amen.